Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm thrilled to be joined today by the brilliant psychotherapist and best-selling author, Phil Stutz. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. Chili Pad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally, Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code thread. This offer is available exclusively for pulling the thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep s-l-e-e-p dot me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. If there's this part of you that you think is inferior, the weak spot, something you're ashamed of, etc. That's one of these things where you believe is true. There's a part of the human soul, we call it part X, that doesn't want you to have any kind of forward emotion doesn't like it. It wants to render your life failure. It wants you to never reach any of your potential. And, and it wants you to hate yourself, which is the biggest thing. So the genesis of the tools came from the idea we, we have to be active about dealing with this. So says Phil Stutz, the creator of the tools. You might know Phil from his best-selling book of the same name, 
or its sequel, Coming Alive, which he co-wrote with his partner Barry Michaels, or you might know him from the Netflix documentary Stutz, which is a profile of him as a beloved psychotherapist who doesn't practice in a particularly traditional way. What you might not know is that Phil is actually a psychiatrist. He received his MD from NYU and then abandoned the standard approach, feeling like he wasn't helping patients at all. He created the tools to do exactly that, to provide practices for people to move through life's obstacles rather than just listening to them talk about them ad nauseum. One of the things that I love most about Phil's approach is the way in which he uses the spiritual, or what he calls higher forces. Foundationally, he believes that a beneficent universe will move in as soon as you put yourself in motion, unlocking creativity and growth. His latest book, Lessons for Living, What Only Adversity Can Teach You, is a beautiful collection of essays from throughout his life about aging, hard times, and obstacles. It's equal parts moving and practical, much like Phil himself. Okay, let's get to our conversation. So I know you obviously are influenced by Carl Jung and shadow work and spirituality, but it's not Jungian, right? Or when you practice, is there that element to it too? Jung obviously was a genius, and he saw things other people didn't see, especially that was basically 1900, which was fairly, I don't want to say crippled, but it was limited. Anyway, we go two ways with this. When I learned Jungianism, which was up until that point was the best thing I had learned, the most effective and the most connected to reality. So once I saw that, I, I studied it and I, I loved it. It was it changed your whole relationship to your dreams for one thing. It also gave people the idea that there were generic forces or archetypes, you call them, that were like floating out there and they applied to everybody. But nobody had said anything like before. So all props to Dr. Jung. However, I felt like where he stopped was where we had to start. And the reason for that was Jung, I think, by nature, but also just the times, it was very passive. So it was a time of science, but it, science didn't supply what was needed here because it's like if you're up to here, you're, you're doing well, you're doing Jungianism. There's a gap, and you have to lump, jump over that gap. And the, the gap is the, is the difference between understanding something, which is like, like cognitive and intellectual, versus doing something, which means you have to have an impact on the world around you. I, I haven't found that the union, the union, and I don't want to characterize a whole you know, a million people or something, but I haven't found it. Not only didn't they know how to do that, they weren't interested. And the Jungians had this thing. Basically, it said if you analyze the unconscious and you have some relationship with the unconscious, that's all you need to do. The unconscious will then resolve its own problems. And that's a form of self-regulation. I just don't believe. I've never seen it work in anything in psychotherapy, in business, wherever you um, look. The idea of self-regulation didn't work too well. So, and I, I'm no great altruist or anything, but it was driving me nuts because I felt we would get right up to the edge of something and we had no way to jump over. So anyway, so that was one part of it. And I think another part of it was 
there were currents running through society and the biggest one of which may surprise you was the ascension of the female. It was just starting then, you know, let's say early 20th century. And I, I believe there's certain things where the time has come. And at that point, they're going to like the ascendancy of women is going to happen anyway, no matter what. The, the question is, is it going to be a good thing or a bad thing? It's hard to imagine it could possibly be worse than the way the males have fucked it up. But the, the whole idea of using the unconscious in a focused way with focused goals and focused tools, that was new. And I can't say that I was genius and I figured it out. It, it just unfolded, you know, piece by piece by piece. I work with a young yin, so and I love the system, but I can also understand how, and I see it in myself, how we all get stuck in our stories and when really we need the moral of the story, right? Or the underlying pattern unlock so that we can move forward. And as you were studying and as you were treating patients, were you hearing a universality of story? I mean, is that essentially where the tools came from, that we're not that different and many of us share the same essential patterning? Yes, I would say definitely. That itself was a huge breakthrough because it forced you to think about these things in a different way. If everything is connected on some level, and even if you can't quite figure out what the level is, it changes the whole world. And you're going to see the world's going to change so much in the next 10 years. It'll be more than the, than the last 10 years of it. It seems even possible. And so there are two parts there. So one is the Jungian part of interpreting the unconscious and what goes on in the unconscious and kind of hypertrophy. The other thing is tools. And here's the story with tools, at least as far as I'm concerned, which are the tools are the, the only thing that can bridge that gap from what you think and your intellectual or cognitive impression to something and what you're going to do about it. Any philosophy starting in the 20th century, any philosophy, not just mine, if it doesn't end with an action, it's not a real philosophy. Now, in the year 1600, you wouldn't say that, but in the present time, that's required because it's an action-oriented universe and it's an action-oriented populace, we could say. So, that, I mean, it's much more complicated than that, but that's at least the, the starting point for me. The other, the other thing about it is that the patients loved it. They just loved it. And I think that's because it was allowing them to do things that they didn't believe they could do. That actually seems impossible. Now, shall I go into Part X? Yeah, yeah, please. Let's talk about Part X. Okay. So yeah, you have the whole thing laid out in terms of where where it, you need help, the changes that have to be made, you know, et cetera. And yet especially the, the, the first half of the 20th century, it, it wasn't working too well. At, at age 65, Freud realized psychoanalysis was failing. And he said, my system is bogus. He called the death instinct. He said, we all have an, an instinct built in not to grow, not to change. Mm. Now, people had hinted at that. But this is the first person to make a theory out of it. As I told you, I don't believe in self-regulation anyway. I've never seen it work once. But it seems at least for it to be possible for a human being to take their evolution or their, their direction in life or whatever they thought their mission was and have some agency in it. 
I think Pardax like deserves a long explication, right? But is it equivalent to the shadow in some ways? Pardax is the shadow when it's been treated badly. The shadow is not a bad thing, even though it comes out as sometimes as inferior, harmful, weak, and very badly injured. But that in and of itself means nothing unless you understand the genesis of it. So what that means is, the best way to say it is self-esteem. Why are people so insecure? And people actually, there's no logical reason for them to be insecure, but they do. Now, the reason they feel insecure is that everybody, me, you, Carl Jung, if he was alive, everybody feels insecure and everybody has a part of themselves that they regard as inferior. Now, so what happens if, if there is this part of you that you think is inferior, the weak spot, something you're ashamed of, etc. That's one of these things where if you believe it's true, there's a part of the human soul, we call it part X, that doesn't want you to have any kind of forward motion. Doesn't like it. It wants to render your life failure. It wants you to never reach any of your potentials. And, and it wants you to hate yourself, which is the biggest thing. So the genesis of the tools came from the idea, we, we have to be active about dealing with this. We called it part X, but that, that doesn't tell you anything. It's just an X. Although it's amazing how many Xs there are now in popular culture. Anyway, so there was something in, in each person. Cardex is the shadow when you stop taking care of it. So you have North and South America. That's permanent. That's unchanging. So that's like a vertical line up here is North America down to South America. But you also have horizontal plane. And in that plane, it's the relationship between your shadow and you or the lack of such that dictates if, if you treat your your shadows badly, it becomes a war, basically. But it, this is very important. The terms of the war is not for anybody to get shot or get killed. In some ways, as bad as that is, there's a clarity to that. Part X is something that works on you most of the time when you're not aware of it. You're seeing or experiencing a part of yourself, but it doesn't want you to win, it wants you to lose. And that's very freeing for people because they feel less guilty. The idea that there's somebody out there that doesn't like me, that's trying to prevent me from moving forward. It seems like almost a ternary system. I don't know if you would think about it like that, but if you think about how, and we can talk about higher forces as well, because I love that that's a dimension of your work. It's, that's yeah. very important to me. But it almost feels like it's like higher forces, part X is like pace setting or blocking or stopping. And then the tools, rather than a stasis or a locked binary of paralysis, that the tools allow someone to move forward. And through that resistance to grow, change, set a new story. Yeah, 100%. You can, you can even go a step further than that and say, the purpose of the tools is to counteract part X at the moment when they're trying to block you. And, and it has to do with possibility and impossibility. Part X is the avatar of impossibility. So part X is saying it's impossible. You can't do that. Don't even think about it. Another way to describe that is 
Heartaches gives you a problem that you really don't need to have. And then it gives you a solution to the problem that makes it worse. That isn't the devil. I don't know what, what is. Want to have conversations with incredible thinkers and leaders? Host a podcast. No, seriously, it is such a privilege to be able to sit down with people who stretch my mind every week and share their wisdom and insights with all of you. It's like going back to school and getting my own version of a PhD. So what's another place to learn from some of the most remarkable experts alive today? Masterclass. There are more than 180 masterclass instructors, including experts in leadership, negotiation, writing, and cooking. You can learn from actor Amy Poehler, who teaches improv and performance, Carla Welch, who teaches personal style, Bobby Brown, he teaches how to put on makeup, or Esther Perel, who teaches relational intelligence. Don't miss Esther's recent episode on Pulling the Thread. These instructors become your own personal mentors, helping you gain real-life skills. I use Masterclass, and you should too. There are more than 200 classes to pick from, with new ones added every month. For example, my good friend and former Pulling the Thread guest, Emily Morse, teaches about sex and communication. And if there's anyone you want to invite into the bedroom with you and your partner, it's her. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com thread. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com thread. Masterclass.com thread. I want to talk about manifestations and I want to share a story from a tools workshop, which blew my mind. So I went as an observer more than a participant and it was for creatives. I think it was for um, screenwriters or the like. And he was talking about the inability of so many people to put their creative work into the world. They'll just take it almost to the finish line and then stop. And then he asked everyone in the room, he said, raise your hands if when you do the dishes, you have to leave a pot. And it was amazing. Everyone's hands went up. And my husband, he's not a writer, but he's a creative. And that's a classic Rob Fismer move is to let something soak. But in that moment, it was a beautiful illustration of how everyone, regardless of the content or the material, it's like the same thing that knocks them down or shuts them down right at that moment before they're complete. This is so important. So one thing you're mentioning is the universality. Once you have the idea of forces, which most people can't really fully accept, but, but once you have that going, there's a connection, even if the connection is World War VI, everybody is subject to the same forces. That's number one. Number two, everything you do for your personal benefit, you want to write a novel, it doesn't matter. Whatever you do because you want to do it or you want a relationship with a certain person, etc. if that does not also have a piece of good stuff for the whole world, for the whole world population, it's very hard to succeed at it. Now, what's going on now, to an unprecedented degree, the part X is getting stronger. The book that's coming out now is the compilation of, of ideas and, and, and stories in it, which is very helpful. 
but the, the book was written, not all of it, but most of it was written 25 years ago, 30 years ago. What does that mean? How can that world is changing? Those haven't changed. The philosophy hasn't changed. The world has changed. And that's where dealing with part X now becomes urgent. It's not a hobby or a speculative philosophical argument. Why is it so urgent? Because the universe to be healthy needs to be in one home. If you want to call it a cosmic family, whatever you want to call it. Part X's job, so to speak, and part of its power to shatter the universe or the human universe. And, and you know, you can see it the first time I think there was universal was the uh, virus. Because you can see people were couldn't even leave their, their houses. It was a fractionation. It, it was like the sun was shattered into a million different pieces. But there was something good about that if you had tools. But see, if you, have, if you don't have tools, you have nothing. When you're in a situation where you, your understanding has reached as far as it can go, then you have to have something that you can do next. And if you don't, you're wasting a tremendous opportunity. So, and the, the tools that we, we ended up with so many of them, and you think, yeah, there's probably a lot, a lot of repetition. There really wasn't. We had at least 40 uh, solid tools. And it, the, the book is constructed so that you can actually do research on yourself. Because there's so many tools and stories in there, you'll probably be able to find at least one. Some people will find 10 that applies to them. You say, well, why can't they read it in the book? Because this is tailored to be doable or actionable right at the moment. And on top of that, we don't train people to try to win. That's not the goal. We train them to be disciplined enough to stay in the process. To stay engaged, ultimately. Do you think that there's a cultural part X and then a personal part X? Yeah. Or that, yeah, the essay on ageism was so beautiful. And the way that I think you write about how the way that we're essentially polarized to value youth versus old people and wisdom it's interesting to see it in this particular moment in time as well, the schism and the inability to reconcile that, right? And then you write about how, you know, you could talk about that as a cultural shadow or big cultural part X. We live in a very ageist culture. And then it trickles down into the personal, right? Where we come to despise our own aging process. The thing about aging, obviously, it also has to do with death. And there's a very strong instinctual drive now to get them off the playing field or altogether. See, there's two universes. Now, universe one, value is denominated in, by numbers. And if if value is, is determined by numbers, where you end up with money as being the arbiter of everything. Universe two is completely different than that. Universe two, value is not a thing. You can't grasp it and take it home with you. It's the ability to create systematically is, is what Universe 2 is about. And it's the only thing it cares about. So I, I tell patients all the time, I tell them, you have to decide which universe you want to be in. And then you have to choose it over and over and over again. But just to go back to the tools, the tools will work against products. They will not keep working unless you keep using them. And 
once they work, work even once, I'll tell you, all of a sudden things begin to seem possible. If this isn't having an effect on you, and that's probably within 10 weeks, it's not 10 years. If it's, if it's not having an effect on you, you should fire me. And this is how I got into the whole thing with, with the tools and, and trying to come up with ways that would break free of the, of the limitation. Anything that's numerical, by definition, it's not that the world is what it is. It's not that. It's that your mind is absolutely encased and trapped. Can I do a picture? Oh. Yeah, please. Now, this is what I'm doing. I'll show it to you in a second. That's called a birthday cake. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> and it has three tiers. So the bottom tier is faith. Now, and this is very specifically not the same thing as proof, which we'll get to in a minute. Faith has to be chosen. There's no way it can be proven. If you're trying to prove it, you're putting yourself back in universe one, which drives on proof. So it's the first step of the birthday cake. Now, the next step is action, which just means just what it says. Because you have faith, can you see it? Mm-hmm. So the next one is action. Then, if you, if you have enough faith to take an action, there's no guarantees of anything at all. If you have that faith, then you become confident. Most philosophies and people say the opposite. They want, they want to have faith. They only want to take action when they already have experienced a series of positive steps. But life doesn't work like that. Yeah. So the, the choice of having faith then allows you to act, which means it allows you to do things that ordinarily you wouldn't do, you wouldn't want to do, that would change too much. And then you become a confident person. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. Isn't this sort of the tool of forward motion, too, that if you have faith that there's beneficent higher force universe and there's something that's trying to come through you, that if you start to move forward, yes, things will start to happen? 100%. We just call it the, the law of forward motion. And yeah. See, the whole universe is moving all the time. So if you're just neutral, you're already losing. Just to say, even with the thing, requires constant time. There's a counter birthday cake. Now, this other birthday cake, the foundation is not faith, it's doubt. So I doubt everything until it's proven to me. 
and that's and proof is the abandoned, worthless stepchild of someone demanding proof, believes in nothing until there's proof, and it was incapable of really looking at the world differently. So for most people, it's a fight between these two worlds. Now, what happened, and I think it happened about 2020, but it was near the pandemic. The, the, the rules changed. What's the difference between before and after? By the way, that difference is when we, we made the uh, documentary. If we had made that documentary 10 years ago, we would have come to see it. But it touched some kind of nerve. And it touched the nerve because it was a very convincing way not to get you to have space to be open to it. And from there, you get the idea that two human beings, any two, can force a bond between them. And once you have a bond, then anything becomes possible. Human beings do have superpowers. They do only if they use those powers in a collective setting, is the best way to say it. So I believe women are much more capable of making that leap. I'm not saying, you know, no men can't, they can too, but to go back to universe one, which is very competitive, it's very materialistic. Women are cynical and skeptical about materialism, but at the end of the day, know on some level that they have something that the males don't have, which is they have direct experience of the most powerful force in the universe, the power that can create life. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, some of the stuff they do now to raise the level of, of opportunity for them is good. I mean, that's the external part. The internal part is to go all the way back to the beginning of whatever this is. It's to act as if they have faith in this creative process, because if they don't, we're going to be a blip on, this, on the screen. It's interesting to think, just being a woman and thinking about the creative process, too, that there's some inherent understanding that a creative system is ternary. Also, just thinking about the tools in that context, that there are these two forces that come together so a third can emerge. Whereas I don't think men, they're just a single force. And so maybe that's why it's so accessible. And I get that we live in a cynical, secular, highly materialistic culture. But as someone who works with creatives, maybe not exclusively, but many creatives, it's interesting that that idea of higher forces would be difficult just because anyone who I think has been in flow or been in a state of high inspiration has to recognize that something else wants to come through them. Is that not a felt experience for most of the people you see? You know, I would say for half of them, it's a, it's a fairly common experience. For the other half, they want it, they like to have it, but their habits aren't good enough. Women also, what I find is they have a natural respect for this whole thing that men don't really have enough. A male mostly, not 100%, but mostly wants dominance. And it's all me, 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 me. And, and it has to be, it's a dominance now. We don't view that sort of power as really so great. See, see this triangle? Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay, so. That's a picture of a dynamic. In, in chemistry, there's a symbol for change. The lower left of that triangle is one point of view about anything. 
and lower right side is the opposing point of view. Evolution and also our survival requires us to somehow put the two together. And you can't just say, we'll be compromising, be nice to, you, you have to actually participate in this. And when you participate, you end up up here. Yes. You see? Yeah, on top of the mount, on top of the triangle. Yeah. So this is the way the universe moves. This, this is the way it creates. There's even a tool for that. You want me to teach you the tool? Yes, please. What would you say is a troublesome habit that you have? Oh, I would say I have a self-soothing habit to do data entry, like comp compulsive tracking, like a, a self-soothing waste of time. I can spend hours just making lists. It, it's not a good use of my time. <laughs> I agree with you because I do the same thing. Probably a different subject matter. So this is called Category 3. So close your eyes and see yourself and feel yourself in, the, in that position where you're addicted, you're compulsive, you have to have it, you're attached. And try to make the feeling of it as extreme as you possibly can. Okay, good. Now erase that. Now I want you to create the opposite feeling, even if you don't feel it very much, of complete letting go of anything and every, everything that's not efficient for And just let that part of you expand. Okay, stop. Now we're going to do the same thing again, but I want you to just go from point one to point two, you know, back and forth. That's good. Now I'm going to tell you to do something. Don't do anything until you, you hear my voice. But once you hear my voice, I want you to do what I ask you to do as immediately as possible. Okay? Okay, now. Oh, that was good. Open. Did you feel anything? Yeah, that's very somatic for me. Like, I can feel sort of the anxious attachment in my chest and then the release into space. I can, it's very much in my body. Okay. So that's, that's called category three. And usually, let's say category one is usually some, something angry and category two is usually something you know, passive. But, but you can cut the pie into any way you want to. The point is you need a way to weave those two extremes. And that you can't do by thinking. Complete waste of time. If you're a meditator, it'll help you a little bit. But what you what you need to do is when you find yourself, let's say for this purpose of today, you know what came out. When you find yourself in a position where you're too far into one state or the other state, you want to use category three as fast as you possibly can. So you're combining two things that are opposites. You, you know what you get when you do that? Flexibility or expansion, relief. Relief is good. That's probably the most. <laughs> But what you're actually feeling is flow. Mm. And flow is the force in the universe that is two opposites. There's a lot of other tools that are similar, but at the beginning, it's just good to do something that people can feel. You know, I look at it like there's two centers of, of wisdom. One is here in the third eye. And m most of what you get from the third eye area is worthless. Not everything, mostly everything. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. 
Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge to have them framed right. I've been having Framebridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But Framebridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus Framebridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why Framebridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local Framebridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. I'm curious to know why the third eye, what you get in the third eye you think is worthless. The third eye is a center of intellect, logic, concise boundaries. You know, there's a clarity to And it's very good. It gave us science. But for, for important human decisions, it's worthless. It, it doesn't help. Why doesn't help? Because nobody, when they have to make a decision, ever has enough information. This doesn't work like that. It would be nice if you did. If I said, well, we have a new job. Would you like to make 400000 or 4 million? That's not a decision. And just to so show you how the therapy part works, there's a cycle. It's called the instinct cycle. And I hope you don't mind these pictures. No, I love them. You see the circle on the The circle with the four numbers around it? Yeah. That's called the instinct, instinct cycle. And the way it works is num- point number one is lower left is basically you're using your instinct. I want to buy this stock. I, I want to send my child to some, some kind of vacation or I don't want to be friends. It, it doesn't matter. The, the pizzas are the format. Your instinct, your intuition is telling you to do this. And it, again, it's the same thing. If it's instinct, there is no proof. There's no bottom line to it. And again, that's because it's an uncertain universe. So that's station one. Station number two is decision. I know what I feel. 
So I'm going to let myself be guided by that, even if I don't feel particularly confident. Number three, which is action. Now, people say to me, why do you need that? You already decided to do it, to take the action. Why do you have that action twice? And the answer is very simple. People tell themselves a million things they're going to do, but they don't do them. So this whole undertaking sucks unless you take it to its completion. Now, its completion is station four. The, the keynote there is taking the consequences. It's not being right. doesn't matter. You have to be able to take the consequences and be willing to take the consequences of, of your decision-making or, or your commitments over and over. Now, what happens if you do that, you might think, well, somebody else seems to have better luck than I have, or whatever it is. That doesn't matter because the, the reason it's called a cycle is it has to be repeated over and over and over. And the person who wins is not the person who's right the most times. It's the person who works the cycle the most times, which is totally different. And that, it's just another, another version of the birthday cake. And I can see how it becomes a spiral and has forward motion as you're taking action at a higher and higher part of that triangle or mountain. So thank you for your book. It's beautiful. And thank you for all your work. It's an incredible contribution to the world of psychotherapy to imagine a more active state because people need, as you talk about extensively, they need tools. They need to be able to move and not just rehash. Yeah, you know, when I first started starting in this, in the very first year, I thought this the whole thing was arranged so people wouldn't change. It was arranged specifically so you couldn't change. And it's so easy to do that because if a patient comes to you with a dire need, all you have to do is nothing and just sit there and you destroy the person. It's true. That's, that's not therapy, that's life. So as Phil mentioned, his newest book, Lessons for Living, is a series of essays. Many of these essays he wrote decades ago and then revised, as he says, only ever so slightly, which gives you a sense of how, I don't want to say classic, because I think that these tools are essentially, are are quite dynamic, but that they continue to evolve and move as we change across time. Here's one moment from the book. Phil writes, The great paradox is that it is not winning, but losing, that reconnects us to higher forces. This is so antithetical to how we see the world that at first it seems insane. But if you focus not on what is lost, but on the state that loss puts you in, it makes sense. In an attached state, you've made the thing you're obsessed with into your ultimate reality. Regardless of what that thing is, your attachment to it puts you into a world where there's nothing higher than a thing. Attachment traps you in this world without higher forces. Only if you lose the thing are you freed from this empty world. Only then can you enter an alive world made of spiritual forces, not objects. That's the secret of loss. It allows you to gain a whole world. And... We didn't get a chance to get into it, but what I hear in Phil's work and, and, and when I've engaged with the tools, 
it is this, I kept talking about a ternary system, meaning three parts rather than a two-part binary of good versus bad or right versus wrong, which is how our reality is often structured and keeps us stuck between two poles. And I think the tools are so special and this idea of higher forces and part X, which is effectively the shadow or the unconscious, which is a pace setter to our progress and in many ways slowing us down, I think, so that we can metabolize what wants to come through us. But what he's articulating are really tactical ways to navigate a system so that you don't get stuck in is this right or is this wrong or who is right and who is wrong who's the victim who's the villain and all of these scenarios but instead to quote Ken Wilber are looking to transcend and include in the tools there's this third force this ternary system of reconciliation so that you are meeting the friction and that friction is what compels you forward I think it's quite beautiful and metaphysical and I hope for many more books from Phil. If you like today's episode, please rate and review and tell a friend. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at elisthlunan.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive most Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at elisthlunan. And finally, if you haven't already, please consider picking up a copy of my New York Times bestselling book, On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, available wherever you get your books. It's an exploration of how women have been conditioned for goodness, men for power, and all the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other according to these cultural ideas of what it is to be a good woman. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread. Available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next time.